Talk about animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Viveka Morris. In 2017, seven indigenous nations and groups in eastern Canada came together to sign an historic agreement to save a herd of caribou that had sustained all of them for time immemorial. The region's caribou herd was once the world's largest, with 800,000 individuals. For thousands of years, indigenous peoples and the caribou met in this region. But then the herd began disappearing. By 2018, there were only 5,500 caribou left in the herd, a 99% decrease from 20 years before. Canada's governments weren't taking action, so these indigenous nations stepped in to save the herd. Overcoming long-entrenched divisions and united by their common relationship to the caribou, these nations created a groundbreaking framework for sustainably managing the herd and stopping its decline. That agreement, known as the Ungava Peninsula Caribou Aboriginal Roundtable, or UPCART, is just one of many examples of how Indigenous peoples across Canada are leading the way on protecting some of the world's most ecologically important ecosystems and treasured wild animals. For millennia, Indigenous peoples have been the caretakers of the land and have relied on animals, caribou, marten, goose, and the abundance of other animals that call Canada home. But industrial development, such as logging and mining, is putting much of the country's wildlife and wild places at risk, along with the ways of life that depend on them. While Canada's provinces drag their feet on needed protections, Indigenous nations are combining their knowledge, Western science, and thoughtful strategy to chart a new path for their people and for the rest of the world. Our guest today, Valerie Courtois, has been a tireless voice for empowering Indigenous communities to manage and protect their ancestral lands. Val is a member of the Innu Nation in the heart of Canada's boreal forest and is the founder and director of the Indigenous Leadership Initiative. The initiative is working to create a new model of Indigenous-led conservation across Canada. These efforts are not just significant for the lands and wildlife of Canada, but for empowering Indigenous nations to define their own futures after centuries of colonial rule and cultural genocide. In the last few years, thanks to Val's leadership, Canada's government has made an unprecedented investment in Indigenous protected areas and Indigenous-led land management, and momentum is only continuing to grow. Valerie Courtois, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you. I'm very, very honored to be here. Val, you began your career as a forester, and now you lead one of the most impactful coalitions of Indigenous leaders focused on protecting land in the world. In fact, you're only one of fewer than 100 Indigenous foresters in Canada. And so in so many ways in your career, you've been an incredible trailblazer. And we're curious to start off if you could tell us some about your childhood and the community and place where you're from and, and what inspired you to pursue this path. Sure. I, I actually have a, an interesting childhood path because my father was an RCMP officer. I, I was kind of like the equivalent to an, an, an army brat. We moved around quite a bit. And that actually explains my English because both of my parents are Francophone. And normally I would have grown up much more Francophone. But having lived in communities across Canada and moved around, I was able to learn some English that that kind of lifestyle did take me a little bit further from my traditional homelands fairly early on. And it took deliberate efforts to really have us as kids, my brother and I, 
connected to the culture and, and to the land where my father's family is from. My mother is Quebecoise and my father is Inu. And uh, I remember distinctly, I was 11 and my grandfather was a, was a fisherman and he loved being the early boat out after the ice had fallen and, and to go get what we call wananish or landlocked salmon. That was his favorite fish at that time of year. And I distinctly remember being in the boat and we would set nets and, and also cast because we, you know, he just really enjoyed showing us all of the different ways that we could be interacting and fishing. And I remember him laughing at me as I was pulling up a net and I was struggling with the net and getting the fish out and just really focused. And he laughed and he said, Val, he said, you're, you know, you're made to be on the land. Hey, and I never forgot that. And, and I, you know, I took it as him meaning that it was, it was my job to be outside and to love and care for the land. And, and so ever since I was 11, I knew that I would be working in the outdoors for the land. I certainly didn't have uh, an interest in forestry at the time. In fact, I had all the kind of preconceptions about what foresters were. And it took a little bit of time for me to realize, you know, how broad a career forestry could be. And, and in fact, it has helped me fulfill my responsibilities as an Innu woman to know the ways of a science like forestry. And so that's been my path. And that's how I ended up here. I love the fact that so much of your work combines uh, these two worldviews that are often uh, very much siloed. So, of course, in, in in kind of Western conceptions of science, you you have things that are much more kind of experiment based and and have a much shorter time scale. And then there's this whole breadth of indigenous knowledge and science that brings something very very different to the table. And with your background as a forester, and of course with your knowledge growing up on the land and and working so long. Um, in that space, you you bring both of these to bear. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this and, and how that has shaped your work. I've always found that the distance between those two worldviews is actually much shorter than, than is assumed. You know, the, the knowledge that has built up over centuries, uh, my, my own kind of Innu knowledge, also comes from experimentation. It just, it's experimentation where you're you're not able to control the variables and certainly, you know, it's a life and death kind of situation in many cases, but it is experimentation. It is thinking about how, how something may react and testing that and, and, and learning over time. But there's another dimension I think is really important in the Indigenous approach that adds the richness of a knowledge system. And that's that's the spiritual dimension. And that's the dimension that brings in responsibility and natural law and all of those other things that kind of dictate behavior, which for me are, are the most important values and boundaries to how we think about the development of knowledge and the use of both. My elders, when we were working with them on various projects, I heard them often say, if your job is to take care of the land, then your job is to use the best available information that you have no matter where that comes from. Mm -hmm. And so if it comes from Western science, then great. If it comes from our Innu knowledge, then great. If it's something that we have to create and discover, then let's do that. But in the end, it's all about that responsibility of making the best decision possible for the future of that landscape and the future of our people. 
your description of the moral responsibility that is entwined with with the indigenous knowledge and, and ways of understanding the land, um, in many ways, I think it is is quite different than in traditional Western law, as you alluded to, in that we see in most law, at least in the U.S., you know, persons and things and people are persons and everything else is a thing. And the two are distinct and separate. And that's how they're treated by law and often in culture as well. Whereas you say often uh, in other interviews that the Innu are caribou people and that the two are effectively inseparable, the people and the land and the animals. And I was wondering to this effect, could you describe the relationship between your people and the caribou and the land? Well, my people are very much the very epitome of, of what you would think of as a caribou people. We wear caribou, we eat caribou, we sleep with caribou, we <laughs> we travel <laughs> with caribou. And it's really the animal that has permitted the survival of Innu for almost 10,000 years in this region. The oldest artifacts that we've found of maritime archaic people, which are the ancestors of the Innu, um, is just over 9,000 years old in the Canastasin region um, here in Labrador. And it really is the caribou that has permitted. This is a rugged landscape. Like when I talk about there's snow this morning, I'm talking there's a foot of snow on the ground. I'm not, you know, like it's it's really an extremely difficult environment to survive in if you don't have the ability to understand and have that deep relationship with caribou. Just today, I was looking in my freezer and I have I still have some a little bit of caribou dry meat and it's so precious. It's like it's like it glows in my freezer, you know, it, it's that important to me. And I've been saving it for a special occasion because as you described, it's really, really hard for us now to have access to caribou. So it's that much more precious and it's that much more of a spiritual experience to consume it and to be with it and, and understand the implications of that consumption and that relationship. The best way I could describe how closely related we are to caribou might be through a very, very shortened version of a story that we have, which is the man who married a caribou. And so long time ago in the era of giant animals and and shape-shifting animals, we were often in a cycle of famine. And this was a, a time when there were two hunters, a father and a son, who were out searching for food and they had had no luck. They were struggling and were really worried about whether or not they were going to make it. And that night, the young boy has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a caribou coming to him and talking to him. And he wakes up and he's all excited and he tells his father about the story. And his father says, my son, you should go out. Um, this is a sign you will find caribou. And I am too weak to help you with that. So the son puts on his moccasins and and grabs his, his arrows and goes out and starts walking out of the tent and over a ridge and then looks down and there's a valley below with with a thicket of trees and it's kind of a misty misty time. And all of a sudden he sees movements and shapes in the mist movement and he looks closer and he realizes that it's caribou moving and he's all excited and he grabs his arrow and he's just starving and he really wants to get this caribou and all of a sudden he puts his arrow up and as he's looking to aim a giant caribou face comes in his frame and he realizes there's a female caribou that is standing right in front of him 
looking at him. And he's all nervous and he's thinking, this is perfect. I can get this caribou. And for some reason, he couldn't let go of his arrow when he aimed it up. And then all of a sudden, the caribou started talking to him. And she said, we are meant to be married. And the young boy says, well, how is that going to work? You're, I'm a man. You're a caribou. <laughs> I need snowshoes. You know, you go far. There's no way I'll be able to chase you. I need a tent. I need, you know, wood and a stove. You have your fur. How is this going to work? And the caribou just keeps insisting we are meant to be married. And the, the young boy continues to just rationalize how this is not going to work. And, and finally, the caribou says, just watch this. And all of a sudden, the caribou transforms into the most beautiful Innu woman the young man has ever seen in his life. And he instantly falls in love. And she says, see how I can transform. You will also transform into me. And so the young man agrees to marry the caribou. And when he does, he becomes a caribou himself. I've really shortened the story. This is normally multiple hours of storytelling for the interest of this podcast. But the idea is to show that the relationship between Inu and caribou is so intimate that we're married. And there are obligations related to that marriage that to this day dictate and help guide how Inu really still interact with caribou. Mm -hmm. And just because a lot of our our audience is is in the U.S., um, and to the extent that they know what a caribou is, they often think of Christmas sweaters with with reindeer on them because caribou Mm -hmm. and reindeer are the same species. The Ungava Peninsula is such a unique place where, and this, this caribou herd is such a unique herd. I was wondering if you could just describe for our audience what caribou are and the place that you're talking about. Sure. Caribou are, to me, the most interesting ungulates out there. We have five kinds of ungulates in the boreal region here in Canada. And they're the only ones uh, where the females retain their, their antlers um, and have antlers. Um, they, they tend to roam long distances. We have three subspecies of types of caribou in this region. They include migratory, uh, woodland and mountain, uh, subspecies. And in fact, in the Ngava region, we have all three present and the Upcart engages and, and thinks about the management of all three of those subtypes. But the George River herd is a migratory, uh, herd that is genetically, the same as the woodland herds, which is an interesting distinction. In the west of the boreal, there is actually a genetic distinction between those types, whereas in the east, there is not. In fact, that's an interesting aspect because in, you know, from our Innu perspective, caribou are, are an animal that have received the same gift from the creator which is that we have as humans, which is the gift of free will, which means mm-hmm. that the caribou can travel and move and be where they want to be and their physiology will change with, with those environments. And so that, that concept that they're genetically the same actually speaks to that story and that, that understanding that the, you know, have about that caribou. Um, it was, you're right, Jennifer, in your introduction and Vivica, that you explained that, you know, this was once the largest herd in the world. We think it was actually at larger than a million at the time. Wow. This was in the seventies and eighties. The, you know, I have friends in the town of Shefferville and there's a mountain behind the, the city and they used to talk about how the mountain would move, 
when the caribou would come through, there was so many caribou. And I've, I've experienced that when I first moved to Labrador and came on the highway, the caribou would often cross the highway. I had to wait for over an hour for the herd to finish crossing the highway before I could make my way into Goose Bay. And I've, I've been on the land where the herd kind of has come through and you're, you're, you're just sitting there and all of a sudden the herd is coming right at you and splits, you know, all the way around you. That That's my, you know, my remaining image of what the George River is. And so this kind of the peak of their population was in the late 80s, early 90s. And since that time, it has had a steady decline. And you're right, we're at less than 5,000 animals now. We haven't had a, an inventory recently, but we're, we're hoping that that'll happen this year. Uh, so that we'll have much better understanding of that number. Now, when when we think about the relationship with that herd in particular, when you describe seven nations who depend on it, that is 60,000 people whose food security is related to the health of that herd. And so when there are less than 5,000 animals, that means that there are 60,000 people whose food security is threatened, really. And so that's that's part of the importance of the work of the UPCART. So how did that decline happen, Val? You you described how in you know, early 2000s when you were in Labrador, you'd have to stop at the highway for these massive mountains. That's such an incredible image to imagine the caribou as a as a moving mountain to pass by. And now it's rare to even have a little bit of caribou meat in your freezer. What caused that dramatic decline? A couple things. Um, one is, well, we, we don't know for sure. We think it's a combination of factors. Um, caribou are a very complex animal and Surely they're, the way they're reacting to, to their environment is also complex. We know that the George River naturally has a very severe amplitude of change. Uh, it is likely the herd in North America that is naturally the most likely to have those amplitudes of change. We know in the past that the herd was low. In fact, it's part of what precipitated the settlement of both Inu and Inuit in Labrador in the last century was the decline of this herd. So we've know, we know it's happened before, but the last time it happened, there was no railroads, there were no mines, there was no forestry, there was no highway, there was no aircraft traffic. And so they had all the room they needed to come back. Today, the question is, you know, we expect that they will come back. Our elders are telling that, the science is saying that. But are they going to come back in the same way? Do they have the same room and the same opportunity to really do that in a healthy way? We also know that they're impacted by climate change. So I have a I have a traditional camp that I run on the George River that I'm hoping, Jennifer, you'll be able to have a chance to come um, and see us at one day. And that camp is located in a place called Caribou House. And normally we would go to that place and the reason we go there is to spend time with caribou. And so we want to be there when the herd is coming through. And and in the beginning, when I first started going there about just over 10 years ago, we would go in early August, end of July, early August. That would be the timing of the crossing. Now that herd comes through more in early September. Part of our theory around that is we think that with climate change, there's been an, an increase of insects and caribou are particularly sensitive to an insect. They have a parasite that's called a warble fly that will burrow in their furs and in their skin. And they're also, they like us, hate 
biting insects, other biting insects. And so they tend to spend time more in the mountains where the winds are high and the wind can help keep those bugs off them than to come down in the valleys and find good food, which is where our, our camp is located in the valley. So we think that with climate change and the increase of insects, that it's actually changed the way and the timing of when the herds um, spend time in different parts of the ecosystem. There are also, when the herd was quite large, I mean, this was a in the early late 80s, early 90s, in fact, there was overlap between the Leaf River herd and the George River herd, which are the two large migratory herds in the Ungava region. And many times it was hard to tell the difference. You know, it was it was getting fairly rare to find good food beds and lichen beds. And I remember flying to the camp in the George River the first time. And as an ecologist and forester, of course, I was looking down out of the plane window and trying to find all the different kind of plants. And I had a really hard time finding, you know, large beds of caribou lichen, which is the major part of the caribou diet. And uh, today, uh, now those beds have grown back. And so that's part of, of the hope that we're going to start to see um, some signs that the decline is, is slowing down and we may eventually be on the upswing again. Upcart is in so many ways um, an innovative and incredible effort. It, as you mentioned, uh, these seven Indigenous nations represent over 60,000 people, You know, meaning you have, have nations who are, are representing people with very different interests and very different relationships in this effort to protect caribou. And Upcart also, uh, you know, it's it's not that um, traditional kind of on-off switch for protection that a lot of mm-hmm. people think about when you're safeguarding a population. Can you talk about how Upcart came together and, and how it works and how it's it's operating today across these different nations and different communities? Absolutely. You know, the instigation and creation of the Upcart really is due to the leadership of two significant and incredible leaders, uh, Prode Poker, who at the time was the Grand Chief of the Innu Nation, and Sara Leo, who was the president of the government of Nunatsiavut, which is the Inuit government uh, and region here in Labrador, who, who both had kind of assessed the status of the herd. And at that time, when they called for the bringing together of all the nations, I, I believe the the herd number we had gotten the year before was seventy four thousand animals, which is you know quite a bit larger than it currently is. But even at that number, had started worrying those leaders, and they approached me. I had been the director of the environment for the United Nation, and then I had moved on and and started working with with the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, and we had relationships with the nations on the Quebec side of the border, and so they asked me to to just convene a meeting, an emergency summit about the caribou. And they suggested that the emergency summit occur and happen in Kujuak, which is kind of the largest center near the, the heart of Caribou House. And so, you know, we called all our all our friends and the chiefs and, and we said, let's have this large summit in Kujuak. I had no problem convincing people to come. Everybody was worried about the herd and they were really, really relieved that there was gonna be a conversation. We also insisted that if this was going to work and if we were going to have a good summit, that we needed to not only have the political leaders present, whether those are our chiefs or presidents or whatever the governance is of those various nations, but we also needed to have the hunters because we know that there's quite a difference in terms of governance between how you govern a community and a reserve and kind of that that official 
kind of political landscape and how you govern hunting, which is much more community-driven, family-driven, experience-driven. And so we not only did we have the political leadership presence, but we had kind of the main leaders in, in the hunting um, for all of those nations also present. So the first meeting, I think I counted 67 people around the table. Um, and there were five translation booths because, of course, many of those hunters only spoke their own language. And so we had Inu translation and Escapi translation and Inutitut and French English and Cree all present in the room. And at first, you know, this was the first time these nations had come together at a table on any issue. All seven of these nations had never sat together before. And so for the first meeting, there was a lot of kind of clearing the air and clearing assumptions and stereotypes and, you know, all of those things. In fact, you know, I, you might be a little bit um, young for this, but I had this image, almost like an Ally McBeal image where there were arrows going across the table, right? As people <laughs> were kind of airing their their concerns and, and their fears and and their hopes for this herd. And after the first meeting, people came together. They actually shared what their common need was. It was the first time that you know, people with the Inu Nation realized how many caribou the Cree Nation needed and the Inuit needed and uh, and what the nature of their relationship were. You, you, there was a lot of, well, our relationship is closer than yours. And then finally, when people were sharing, they were like, oh, wait a minute. We, we all have an important relationship with this caribou. And even if it's a little bit different, it doesn't make it any less important or any any uh, less of a reason to, to consider those needs. And, and so after that first meeting, immediately the Nation Inu in Quebec uh, offered to host the next one. And three months later, we were in Setil uh, in Washat, which is uh, the largest of the Inu communities. And um, uh, at the Chaputuan Museum, they have a beautiful facility. And we had the second um, summit. And that's where the UPCART was officialized. And we had a terms of reference. We had an executive committee, a technical committee, and a work plan put in place by that second meeting. I have, and I have to say, like I've managed and, and facilitated and moderated all, all kinds of meetings in my career. Those, that process was the most efficient and kind of dedicated process. And it's because the caribou was at the heart of the reason why people were coming together. And I'm proud to say that that meeting in Washat actually led to the unification of the Nassau Inu, which is my own nation. Uh, I'm 42. And I had never seen my my nation be really unified. But after that meeting, they they decided that they had demonstrated that they can work together. And um, there was an elder who who stood up at that meeting and said, you know, our unity is a gift from the caribou. And we have mm -hmm. a responsibility now to honor that gift and to stay unified and to continue to really work together for the future of our nation. So I have I have a bit of pride of having had a, a small part to play in the unification of my nation, too. Rightly so, too. That's a you know incredible story and incredible leadership to hear. But particularly when you know the history of how these caribou were listed as threatened in Canada in two thousand three, and and the the federal government, by comparison, and, and the provinces were so so slow to act at a time when time wasn't available, that these creatures needed immediate help. And so there's, you know, years and years of sort of dragging of feet and lack of creation of real plans. And then to see these indigenous nations come together and, and act so powerfully and so swiftly and in, in a way that 
you know, created all of these other benefits, as you say, is truly moving. Yeah, well, you know, it's it, governments are it's tough for for federal governments and and for the provincial governments to really think about the nuance of things mm-hmm. like herd like the George River really needs to survive. You know, the, it, it's fascinating to me how how all of this could work, but you know, on one hand, they have a, a Department of of Natural Resources who, and their mandate is to develop the natural resources of the province to the maximum of their value, and then on the other hand, they have a Department of Environment whose job is to protect uh, the, the resources and the environment and for in perpetuity for the benefit of the citizens of the province. And then, so you're, you know, as, as an indigenous nation, we're like, wait a minute, your left hand is built to take as much out of the ground as possible. And your right hand is built to keep as much of it there. Like, how do you balance that? And that's the beauty of the upcard approach is we, we try to do both at the same time rather than thinking about those things separately. And you're right, you alluded to the on-off switch, really the only management tool that the, the governments were using um, with respect to the caribou was, was hunting on, hunting off. And the UPCART's strategy plan really takes much more of a nuanced approach that looks at the conditions on the ground, what we know about the population size and the dynamics that are driving that population size, and then also prioritizes access to the indigenous nations as the rights holders for those areas. And so it's it's a much more nuanced approach. And this also gets to some of the work that you're doing with the Indigenous Leadership Initiative all across Canada. So the work that you're really spearheading is creating this new framework of Indigenous-led protection and, and land management all across Canada. For example, your leadership was really indispensable to pushing the Canadian government recently to invest in Indigenous conservation areas and to the government's announcement in 2017 that it would, be, it would be providing $25 million in funding for an Indigenous Guardians network, which uh, I believe you've described in the past as a network of moccasins and mukluks on the ground mm-hmm. to really protect and monitor the land. Can you talk about some of the work that you're doing on a national scale to empower Indigenous communities and nations to to lead on land protection and and your vision for the Guardians Network? Sure. I mean, the ILI, the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, is really an advocacy group that is pointing out the genuine leadership that is happening on the ground by Indigenous nations right across what is now known as Canada. We, you know, I you've described the, in, in a way, some of the career that I've had. I, I you know, I've been at this for almost 20 years now. And in my time, the vast majority of protected areas that have been established and designated in Canada have been either led or co-led by Indigenous peoples. And we know that it's we're in an era of, of a biodiversity and climate crisis. And, and, and even though we have, we're so lucky in Canada to have such large intact landscapes and functioning ecosystems in place, we we have a responsibility to the rest of the globe with respect to those areas and those ecosystems. And the boreal forest contains up to a quarter of the world's freshwaters and, and wetlands. Um, it has the largest terrestrial storehouses of carbon in the globe. These are, these are things that Indigenous nations know intrinsically about those landscapes. And, and so what the ILI does really is, is to provide a, a, a national kind of voice and framework for advocacy of that leadership that is existing on the ground. And, and one of the, you know, there's two real 
things that are exciting me about the the, the future and, and the Indigenous future of this country. And that is the Indigenous-led conservation and the movement of designating what we call Indigenous protected and conserved areas. For anybody who wants to know more about that work, you can check out the website um, Conservation 2020 Canada, uh, and you'll find the report by the Indigenous Circle of Experts, which uh, called We Rise Together, uh, which describes uh, the framework and, and, and what Indigenous Protected and Conserved Areas or IPCAs are. But that to me is, is a new tool and a new way of looking at protection that is providing the space and, and, and the frame for that Indigenous leadership. You know, not all Indigenous nations are in favor of things like national parks, because as you, as you may know, national parks or provincial parks or those kind of tools inherently recognize the responsibility and ownership of the Crown or public governments over those areas. And of course, we're in a situation in Canada where, where the very title of much of the lands is in question and dispute. And that's why we have processes like land claims in Canada. So this, this idea of state tools to advance protection is, is one that is uncomfortable for many nations. And so that's why the, the shape and, and opportunity of, of IPCAs is, is really catching fire um, in this country. And then, of course, you can't have these landscapes and these lines on a map that, that talk about you know, land use designation without actually having people on the ground kind of making sure that that happens, that the conditions that you're protecting are still there, that the values that really has driven those land use decisions are are thriving. And so that's where the stewardship piece is. That's where the guardians are important. And, you know, they are our eyes and ears on the ground. They are, you know, our boots or our mukluks and moccasins on the ground. And I, you know, I can't overstate how important the work of the guardians is. They do everything from designating protection and doing kind of that planning aspect to monitoring to um, safety on on the land implementation of environmental protection plans related to to mines and other development projects they they really do it all and what we found is that they not only have a huge impact on land management but also because they're taking and having an indigenous approach to that work, they're having a huge impact in the community. And we've, we've started measuring that impact. And what we found is that for every dollar invested, we're, we're finding about two and a half to three dollars in return of value. And, and that translates into things like reduced rates of violence against women because our men are working and are proud and, and are healthy, reduced rates of diabetes, reduced rates of incarceration, increased delivery of education increased retention of language, all of these things that are really, uh, really important to to address and hopefully design a, a future that, that really negates and kind of rises above the impacts of colonialism that we've had here in this country. You've spoken before, Val, about how one model for this program when, when you were first envisioning it was based on um, a similar program in Australia, where mm-hmm. they've also had incredible success, uh, similarly to what you're just describing in terms of enormous return measured by the dollar and measured in, in many other ways as well. And I'm curious, what about that program inspired you? And are you seeing a similar model of Indigenous guardianship and sort of collective united power in this way being replicated in other areas of the globe? 
yeah, I mean, Australia certainly has led the way when it comes to a national approach to Indigenous stewardship. They've had Indigenous protected areas since, I believe, 1997, and what they call rangers uh, in place officially at the national level since, since the, the late uh, 2000s. And they've invested significant monies in those programs. And, and what they've found, they've found a similar return on investment, a one to three a return on investment there. And, and in fact, more than half of their national network in Australia of protected areas has been created and is managed by the indigenous peoples of Australia. So they're really leading the way. In fact, a few uh, last month or two months ago, they, they announced a new investment of 700 million Australia uh, over a number of years, which is really going to allow for, for those ranger programs to, to remain in place till about 2028. That's the scale of investment that we're looking for in Canada. We have an even larger landscape to manage. We have 51 different nations that are distributed in, in over 634 different reserves and communities. We have 51 Inuit communities, uh, an innumerable Métis communities. These are, you know, this is really an opportunity for, for Canada to think on, on the same and at least the same scale as, as Australia has, has thought about this. We've had a number of exchanges between the ranger programs in Australia and those in Canada, and it's actually quite remarkable how similar the approaches are and the values for those programs really are. Um, we've had a similar co- colonial experience, of course, with the British and, and our both Commonwealth governments. We have similar parliamentary systems. All of those things are really good conditions for collaboration. And so we've been to Australia a number of times and they've come here and toured our different communities and programs. And uh, we just look forward to continuing to build that relationship and those exchanges because we can really learn from them. And and we think that they also have some things to learn from us. And uh, so, yeah, Australia has has really led the way um, for a national approach. And and uh, we think that uh, here in Canada, we could we could do at least as well, if not better. I think it's really hard to overstate just how critical the work that ILI and and Indigenous-led protection is doing on the ground in Canada. I know this is happening across Canada's ecosystems. Um, The area, of course, I'm most familiar with is is the boreal forest, which spans Canada from the eastern provinces all the way up to the Yukon and, and even goes into the U.S. and Alaska. And, you know, this forest, as, as you know, Val, is the largest intact forest left in the world. It has more carbon stored than all the world's oil reserves combined. It is the nesting ground for billions of, of migratory birds that, you know, we're seeing right now in our backyards here in the U.S. that are keeping us company during quarantine. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, this work is really critical to nation building and to the process of reconciliation that's happening in Canada right now. And I was wondering if you could talk about this latter point a little bit more and the the historical importance of what this means for Indigenous peoples in Canada and the future of that nation-to-nation relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, as we've spoken about, that that colonial history in Canada has been one where where really there's been a deliberate effort of assimilation that was framed by what is currently the oldest laws on the books in Canada, which is known as the Indian Act, um, which was, you know, the first large act that was created after the creation of Canada in 1867. And that act really designated 
the federal government as is almost the caretaker of indigenous peoples and and was really set up to create all the conditions to eliminate and assimilate the nations into a new nation which was Canada but of course that effort failed and failed miserably and created a, a whole impact of trauma and oppression that has caused some egregious situations in in this country i mean the the standard of living of Canadians is is known to be globally, you know, one of the highest, whereas the standard of living in many of our Indigenous communities is is much lower. In fact, comparable to many third world countries, we have over 80 remaining boil water or advisories in, you know, in the 634 communities. I mean, we, we talk about this COVID time. One of the communities that has had a case of COVID in Babatang in Northern Ontario is a community that has had a boil water advisory in place for over 20 years. So there are there are young 20 year olds who've never experienced, you know, being able to turn their tap on to have clean water and what that what that's like. And whereas every other Canadian, you know, living in Toronto or Ottawa or here in Goose Bay enjoys that privilege and that freedom. So it's, you know, that legacy of trauma. Um, We've we had residential schools. Uh, My father is a residential school survivor, his brother. These are all things that happened and have led to to a mining and really deterioration of our own nationhood because the intention was assimilation. In the late 2000s, we had a, a process called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which, which was created after the federal government apologized for residential schools. And, and it had three commissioners that traveled for over five years and, and, and had held a number of hearings across the country and, and developed a, a report that really is a roadmap and has a number of recommendations, 94 recommendations on how the federal government, but also churches and other institutions can really do their best in achieving what we've called reconciliation, which is this goal of, of essentially coming together as peoples in Canada and recognizing each other's um, nationhood and, and that, that idea of, of nations and and really is is a much better foundation for for the Federation of Canada than than the way that it's been built originally, which was one of assimilation. And so that reconciliation movement has been ongoing um, for a number of years. It's 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 tough. Uh, there are very there are lots of thought camps about you know what does reconciliation look like? Who's responsible for it? You know, when you're when you're in a situation with a dispute, you know, who who makes the step and um, and how does that happen? And and where's the safety in that process? And so it's it's a tough process. And what excites me about the guardians is that the guardians provide an opportunity for that reconciliation, that coming together and recognizing each other to happen on an individual basis, which to me, you know, it's we could do all of the institutional changes we want. It really to to achieve a place where this country has a a genuine shared future that respects all of our cultures and and nations and modes of governance is one where individual Canadians and individual Indigenous peoples are going to come together and understand each other. And that's what the Guardians provide. They're on the ground, they're meeting with community members and other land users, and they're having conversations and demonstrating their own leadership. And so for me, if this country is really going to be transformed, it's going to be through things like that, 
And my vision and our vision at the ILI is that every single First Nation and Indigenous community in Canada that wants a guardian program should be able to have one. And if that was in place in all 634 communities and 51 Inuit communities and et cetera, then we think it would transform the national conversation on the future of, of, of our lands and the future of what development and conservation really needs to look like and, and what we mean by balance in the boreal, especially noting all the things that you noted you know, in your introduction, Jennifer, about how it's the largest intact forest and has all this fresh water and carbon reserves and you know, large roaming animals and all of the things that we would want in functioning ecosystems and, and what that means in terms of a global responsibility. Mm-hmm. And the work to achieve that balance, I think, is more timely than and more urgent than ever. Across Canada, you're seeing logging in the boreal happen at a rate of over a million acres a year, uh, oil and gas development out in the western provinces, mining happening across the country. And of course, climate change is a growing threat that increasingly needs that on-the-ground knowledge of the land to adapt to. How is the work that the Guardians are doing and that nations across Canada are doing in their protected areas work most apt for addressing these challenges? And what what kind of work are they doing to ensure that this balance is adhered to in the future? In order for Indigenous nations to really participate to the decision-making process around land use and development on their landscapes, They need the tools and and teams to be in place. And that's what the guardians are. And to me, that means that the guardians provide essentially the the implementation tool to achieve free prior and informed consent, um, which is one of the the major features of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples related to their lands. And so what I, you know, I kind of cheekily describe is, is the guardians, they do the I part of FPIC, the informed because we can we can easily ensure that those decisions are free. We can make sure that they happen before, you know, prior to the development of the project. Um, and we know what consent looks like. At least we have an idea of what consent looks like. But the I is always the hardest part. How informed, how much information is enough information to make a solid decision? You know, like, like with the elders in the back of our minds, you, you have to have the best available information possible to take care of that responsibility that you have on the land. And the, that to me is what 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 guardians are doing. They're they're able to go collect data, make measurements, uh, monitor impacts, implement plans and and mitigation measures, and really be the eyes and ears on the ground. I can give you a, a tangible example here in Labrador. There's only about one federal officer who's in charge of of implementing all the rules and regulations related to federal laws in Labrador, and that that's everything from ocean management to fish bearing streams to management of military and federal um, reserve lands, et cetera. We have 34 um, different guardians uh, in the three different nations that, that are here in, in Labrador. And, and so that's 34 sets of eyes on the land, 34 times more. And not only that, the guy, the Environment Canada guy, whose job this is officially from the federal government, really has little ability to travel on the landscape. He's alone and is based here in Goose Bay. Whereas the 34 guardians are constantly traveling and moving and being who they are on their landscape. So, so not only do they have 34 times the chances of catching it, they're moving. And so if, if there's going to be an issue here in Labrador, there are, there's way more chances that that issue 
is caught early and able to be dealt with by guardians than it is by the official kind of government person whose job that is. And, and so that's part of the value proposition that we've made to the federal government. They have their own responsibilities right, and that they've written for themselves in their acts and in many cases are not able to fulfill those responsibilities, whereas the guardians are. And the guardians now are also playing a extraordinarily important role in the response to COVID-19. Mm. Um, we see here in the U.S., I think all over the world, that a lot of indigenous communities are at particularly high risk from COVID-19 because healthcare is limited or running water is limited, as you mentioned, or they may be disproportionately impacted by underlying conditions. And the guardians in Canada have been really stepping up as responders in a major way, including, which I found very interesting to read about recently, working with um, scientists and students mm-hmm. who would otherwise potentially come to the region to conduct annual research, be it on wilderness management or wildlife conservation or permafrost levels for climate change. And now given this pandemic, they can't come. Um, and so I'm curious, could you speak about how the Guardians are, are responding to COVID-19, and which I think is, a, is an interesting example of how they're uniquely um, you know, capable and important in this moment? Yeah, they're responding in in a multiple of ways. But one, the guardians in in many cases and in many communities, they're the major employer in the community. So it's it, they're the kind of the you know the the elite team that that goes around the community wearing their uniforms and whose job it is to take care of the land and take care of people. And that doesn't change in a situation of COVID. It it it, it modifies a little bit, but that's their main responsibility is to essentially to, to take care. And and now we have the situation where community members and and the safety of those community members is is needed needs some care, and so guardians are doing everything from providing food. There's instances of guardians hunting and and distributing food to community members, uh, especially those that cannot go to kind of their traditional grocery places or or other sources. They're providing firewood. You know, this pandemic and the lockdown started in mid March, when in much of the northern regions there's still quite a bit of of snow and it's still it's still quite cold. The lakes are still frozen. They've been distributing water. The other thing they've been doing is is you know this this pandemic is not the first pandemic that our people have faced. We had the Spanish flu in the in the early 1900s. We've we've had you know a number of other pandemics come through, and some of the most important survival decisions that were made by communities in those past pandemics have been to actually leave the community and go to the bush. Because in the bush, often we're, we're separated into small family units rather than being all crammed into small houses. I mean, there's, there's families in, here in Sheheji that are, you know, 15 to a house. And if in conditions like that, if, if, if one were to be infected by COVID, of course, the 14 others would be significantly at risk. Whereas in the country, you might have two, three people per tent and, and they're spread out. And so those are all great kind of pandemic management techniques and the guardians are playing a role in facilitating the preparation for people being out in the country. Um, in fact, uh, uh, we know that there's been um, investments from government um, to facilitate that as well. And so the Northwest Territories is a great example of that. And so now, not only are guardians really important for all of that return on investment that we mentioned before and you know reduced rates of incarceration and all that, but they're actually a fundamental emergency response tool for communities. And, and many of our communities here um, in Canada, because of their vulnerability, are quite strict in terms of their pandemic measures. They've shut down their borders, are not letting anybody in and out, are arranging for delivery of food and all of those other things. And, and so the guardians are, are, are almost like 
our army reserve team that is that is uh, engaging on that. Well, that's a, that's incredibly inspiring. To close, we like to ask each guest to recommend make several recommendations for listeners, be it books or stories or films or works of art or um, inspiring organizations or individuals that have had a significant impact on how they approach their and understand their work. Do several come to mind for you? Lots come to mind. Um, you know, my inspiration comes mostly from the nations themselves and from the land. I, if there's one thing that I can encourage your listeners to do, it's it's to be connected to the environment you're in, no matter what that looks like. Um, it's such an important aspect of our humanity and, and who we are as, as people. And, and it breaks my heart when I see that disconnection and when I see people that don't really um, have an opportunity to just be with with and uh, who they are in their landscape. So I think that's the most important thing, and that's that's where I I certainly get my inspiration. There are a number of of film products. If you if you want to check out our landneedsguardians.ca uh, website, and I would encourage your listeners to sign in and sign on. This is a, a campaign where we're trying to really work to significantly increase the funding of guardians. There's a number of of film tools and and short documentaries, uh, social media videos, blogs that are posted. We're we're regularly updating uh, that website and those social media feeds, and and you'll be able to see the the guardians in action. One of my favorite kind of most recent video features the work of the Taku River Klingit on the northwestern coast of British Columbia. Um, it's a 12 minute documentary that I would love for all of your viewers to have a chance to see. I think you'll be quite inspired. Um, by their work, and you'll you'll see, you know, the the beautiful landscapes that these guardians are are working to protect. Um, and we also on Friday next week we have a, a watch party, which I'm learning all about as as the, <laughs> on Facebook, uh, where we'll we're we're gonna show a video that we call honoring the land, which is kind of a summary video of of what guardians are and and what they do. And we'd love to have your viewers kind of sign on. We have a YouTube channel, uh, the Indigenous Leadership Initiative. And so if you just search uh, ILI on the or Indigenous Leadership Initiative on YouTube, you'll be able to find all of the videos that we post on all of our channels. Well, Valerie Courtois, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my honor. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to know more, get in touch. We're, we're all about telling this story. The more people who know the story and, and the important work of, of both the nations and, the, and their guardians, the better chance we'll, we'll have of, of that work being supported and, and understood and, and inspiring others. Absolutely. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals Program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find more about Valerie Courtois and her work. Thanks for listening.